0: Well, welcome. Hopefully you had a chance to pick up a handout this morning. It has uh, a bunch of stuff on it, and uh, we're going to use it a little differently than usual, I think, this morning. Let me just get this door, and then I'll be right back in the shot, uh, and then we'll do that. There we go. I'm back. Okay. All right. Well, welcome. Um, there's a, there are a lot of things we could cover this morning. And what I really want to do is kind of move quickly through some of the overall content so we can spend most of our time just practicing and doing these things together. Um, I, I find that to be really edifying. Um, and so that's going to be my goal teaching wise. So why don't I pray and then we'll dive in this morning. Our Father in heaven, we pause just to ask for your help. We've all had many things taking place this morning. Uh, It's it's a full Sunday in many ways, and we're asking your help for us to be able to think about your word, to be edified by it, to think through how we study it. Thank you that you've revealed yourself to us, and we pray for um, your spirit's help that we would be lifelong learners of how to better understand what you've communicated to us in your word. So help us this morning, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so um, this class could be called a class of acronyms, and um, I'm just going to keep reviewing them because I, <laughs> I keep forgetting them. So if I'm forgetting them, <laughs> I think it would be helpful to review them, both for myself and then probably for you. So when we uh, think about them, the idea of overall meditation on Scripture which is really the overarching goal of this is isn't just to like learn facts but to move Godward with God's word um, through meditative prayer. And so TPCA is a really helpful way to think about that. What is the passage teaching? What can I praise God for in the passage? Um, That leads us to confessing the things that we may see in the text of where we fall short, and then also asking, asking for the things that the text um, has us think about. And that puts us in a nice, humble, dependent posture. So TPCA. I keep saying, well, if I say it, it might even confuse you. So anyhow, that's the order that's helpful. Uh, <laughs> this week I was doing it out of order, and I was like, boy, it'd be really good if it was flipped. I was doing confess before praise, and I was like, that really doesn't seem to make sense. Then I went back and looked, and it's like, <laughs> that was stupid. It, uh, it's supposed to make sense. So anyhow, another way of uh, thinking about actually studying the text, or what does the text say, that kind of T part, what does it teach um, you could think, oh, captor, my captor. I know that's not actually, oh, captain, my captain, but if that helps you remember it. The reason I say, oh, captor, my captor, is the O oh makes us stop and think, observe, right? With everything we do, just stop and observe the text. So, O, oh, and then captor. Um, context, analysis, which is what we're looking at now, then problems. Like, what are the problems of the text, which Ryan will begin exploring next week? Themes, obligations, reflection. These are things, as we come to a passage and we're saying, what does it teach? This is kind of a helpful process to walk through, and these are some great tools to have in your toolbox. So we're continuing on today with analysis. So it is um, the second thing there, um, context analysis. Last week, we talked um, saying there are two main types of analysis. Analysis is just breaking down and analyzing something to see what's there. Um, Last week, we talked about narrative analysis. So a third of the Bible um, are stories or dramas. And so it's really important to know how do we look at a story? How do stories make their points? And we explored some of those things uh, last week. This week, we're going to look at the other uh, two-thirds of Scripture, which is um, related to discourse. And um, with all of these things, well, let me just say this. Discourse, so when you think about discourse, it's pretty much everything that's not a story in the Bible, but it's things like the laws, letters, prophecies, proverbs, psalms, speeches, prayers, visions. All those things are discourses. They are um, not a story necessarily. And so even even poetry, it's a, it's a form of discourse that kind of has um, some other rules to it that we're not going to talk about as much, but all of this is overall helpful in it. So when we talk about analyzing discourse, um, we should figure out what it is. And so discourse analysis is, it's listed there on your handout. Um, Discourse analysis is the study of the way that authors put sentences and paragraphs together to make their point. Now, I'm just so curious. I've been kind of picturing this all week, Like um, that as soon as we say discourse analysis and say this is how words and sentences are put together, that half of you, I don't, I don't know what the ratio is, but some of you are like, yes, structure, syntax, I love this stuff. And the other half is like, I'm so glad I got out of high school and don't do this stuff anymore. You're telling me I have to do this in the Bible, right? <laughs> um, and so I don't know where you fo- How many of you get excited about syntax, just out of curiosity? Why don't you? Okay, so that's way less than half, but thank God for you. Um, it takes all types, right? <laughs> I'm glad you're here. It's just good to know that how many of you kind of hate it? Anyone? Can you admit it? Like, it's okay. Hate. We're not allowed to say hate in our house, but strongly dislike. Okay. And a bunch of you are just in the middle. It's kind of, yeah. Okay. Cool. Great. Well, uh, this will be great. So for those of you who love syntax, you're going to be disappointed because I'm just flying over it at a high level. Um, for those of you who don't, you're going to be disappointed because we're talking about it at all. And for all of us in the middle, we're going to keep it to, to what's helpful. So anyhow, just acknowledging there's a whole um, um, spectrum of this. When it comes to analyzing discourse and like syntax and all of these things, it can be a lifelong pursuit. And books upon books are written. I meant to bring Wallace's beyond the basics of Greek grammar or syntax or whatever. And it's like this thick, and it's just, it's just starting and uh, talking about the different ways words are used, especially in Scripture. And so it's as deep as an ocean, but what I want to encourage you about is every little bit of it that you grasp and apply pays huge dividends. It really is worth it. And so not all of us have to have like, PhDs in this kind of stuff, or a master's degree, or anything like that to understand our Bibles. Just slowing down and looking at how the writer put his argument or sentence together, just slowing down and thinking about that, will pay off in rich ways. And then you can just keep going from there if you'd like to. So why analyze discourse? Um the reason to do it is it's helpful to know why the author is saying what they're saying. You know, sometimes we, there could be the slogan, the Bible teaches it, that settles it. Um, okay, like on the one hand, um, and we can bring faith, like it requires faith to believe what the Bible says. But the scriptures do, across the board, give a lot of explanation of why they're saying what they say about God, about how we should live. And discourse analysis is just saying it's important to step back and say, Why is it saying we should do these things? Um, Even if we already accept what the Bible teaches just based on the Bible's own authority, discourse analysis is still beneficial because it gives us a better grasp of where that authority is coming from and and how these arguments are being made. So that's a brief why. I could go on and on. Um, But the real question is, how do we analyze discourse? How do we do it? And so... I just wanna highlight a few main principles. And now here's where it gets really wild. You ready for this? Normally, we would open our handout and go on to page two. I want you to do something crazy. Flip over your handout and go to page four. You wanna know the reason? Because I wanted us to have more space for practice in the middle, but that's the last thing we'll do. But I wanted to have space. So uh, that was, that's my discourse and you can analyze it you know, of uh, how the handout works. So if you just look at the back, again, I'm going to move through this rather quickly so we can put it into practice, and you can come back to this as a resource. And if you'd like more resources on it, I can point you in directions. Um, there's a whole appendix in Doriani's book just on understanding some of these categories of words. But the first thing, there's really there are really two things I would say to do when you come to a paragraph. And the first is to look for the main idea. When when we think of discourse analysis, you know, sometimes when you think about Bible study, I'm not sure what category you think we start in. A lot of us might jump to words, the individual word and doing a word study. We might think that's where the real like meat is. I think it's good to discipline ourselves to say when we come to discourse in scripture, when we come to scriptural writings, our basic unit of thought is a paragraph. And a paragraph typically consists of several sentences. Usually in English, it's going to be several sentences. Sometimes in the Greek, it's a really long, unwieldy sentence that actually is a paragraph. But as as we come to the text, think in terms of paragraphs, our English versions have pretty helpful paragraph breaks for the most part. It's it's rare that you're like, oh, this is ridiculous that they broke the paragraph here. And for basically normal Bible study, just looking at the paragraph divisions in your Bible is a great place to start. And then when you come to the paragraph, then look for the main idea of that paragraph. What is this paragraph about? And then you build that out by starting to see the relationship between the different paragraphs, and it all starts to fit together kind of like a puzzle. Um, And as you explore the main idea of the paragraph, like you say, okay, this paragraph is about living a life that's honoring to God. As you then start to break it down and look how things are connected, you start to understand more specifically what the paragraph's about. For example, it's about living a life that's honoring to God as a living sacrifice. Oh, that's more specific than another passage that's saying, live a life that's honoring to God by the way we interact with those who have authority over us. That's a similar main idea, but a different main idea. Um, So you get more specific in that main idea kind of the more you study it. Um, And so look for main ideas. Now, here are a few clues for finding the main idea. And... You you could probably just tell me these clues, but there are certain locations that are usually helpful for finding the main idea of a paragraph. Anyone have an idea where a main idea might be hiding in a paragraph? And you can we don't need a mic for this, but yeah, Piper. Yeah, at the beginning, a lot of times the main idea of a paragraph is at the beginning of a paragraph, the the introduction. Where else can they hide? Not that they're really hiding. The end, right? Sometimes a paragraph talks and then says, and this is what I've been saying. Um, and so so looking at the beginning or end of a paragraph um, can be really helpful. Another clue is restatement. Sometimes authors, especially when you think of how Scripture was initially um, Digested, (laughs) taken in. It was heard, right? And one of the most helpful things when you're hearing something is repetition. And so when you find things being repeated in Scripture, that's usually a big deal. James chapter 2 says, Faith without works is dead, pretty much three times, with almost the exact same wording. That's probably the main idea of James 2 in some way, right? And then the last one is direct address. Um, when authors shift into um, direct address or speaking to the audience, a lot of times what that does is catches our attention and says, here's a main idea. Ryan and I do this when we're preaching sometimes. We'll say, now friends, and we say that, or brothers and sisters. And it's interesting just to watch people be like, oh, I'm being addressed, you're probably saying something important. We implicitly kind of know these things, um, and so we bring that to our study of Scripture. So like Romans 7.4, Likewise, my brothers, or my brothers and sisters, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so we may belong to another. I'm going to give you this main idea here. We've died so that we belong to another, and um, it's, we're um, cued into that by the direct address that happens. Okay. We doing okay so far? The second thing then, so you come to a paragraph, right? We think in paragraphs, and we say, what's the main idea of this paragraph? Once we kind of have an idea what the main idea is, and again, that's like a h- hypothesis that you're either substantiating and making more specific, or as you study it more, you might say, oh, I thought that was the main idea, but actually it's this. You know, So the, the process is fluid, But once you find the main idea, then you secondly look for connections. How are things connected in the passage? One of the ways you look for them is through explicit connections. And what that means is this, connecting words. So we use connecting words all the time, don't we? Things like, because, so, Since, when? If you look down on your sheet and you see these categories of connecting words, all those things in parentheses that are italicized, those are examples of connecting words. And so you just start looking for these words um, and these explicit connections. We'll, We'll practice that in a minute. The other thing you need to be aware of, though, is ideas aren't just connected by explicit connecting words. Ideas can also be implicitly connected. Um, what that means is it's not stated obviously, right? It's, it's capable of being understood, even though it hasn't been blatantly expressed. And so um, many portions of the Bible, when we study them more closely, we start to realize that they have an implicit logic to them, especially as paragraphs kind of continue on in an argument. Um, And this is one of the things that we can tend to miss when we zero in like on a proof text verse, when we kind of have the favorite verse and we've lost the context. A lot of times in losing the context, what we're also losing is there's an implicit reason Paul has started talking about this, even if he hasn't come out and said, I'm going to talk about this now. Um, We see this kind of, well, we, we definitely see it with the book of Romans that we're studying in the worship service we really find a lot of the reason of why Paul wrote Romans at the end of the book. And we're going to get to that in chapters you know, 14, 15, and then 16 are, are the addresses. But um, we come to understand that it's so much of the reason he's excited to proclaim the gospel to them, which he's talking about in chapter 1, and then he's unpacking of how the gospel perfectly remedies both our condemnation and our... Um, Um, sin's presence problem in our lives is so that the community of believers could be transformed in the midst of their different views about things. Whoa, that's really interesting. That's an implicit logic that we have to be thinking about when we say, why is Paul in chapter six talking about you've died to sin and now you offer your body this way? Um, What's really on his mind? Well, that's a whole lifestyle, but in particular, that's going to be manifested in the way we now welcome one another in the midst of all of our differences. Like that's part of what the gospel is bringing about. That's an implicit connection um, that's taking place there. Um, and so I just want to kind of close this part with this. A drink. Um, so here, here's something that I think is Interesting. People tend toward one or the other. I like narrative analysis versus I like discourse analysis. As I'm talking, one of the things you may notice is there's a lot of overlap between the two. And I think that can make it fun for either type. Um, Some of the overlap is this. Both, whether you're pondering a story or whether you're pondering a paragraph, part of what you're trying to ask is how one thought leads to another how one scene leads to another versus how kind of one sentence or idea or phrase leads to another. Both are asking, why did the author put this specific thing here and nowhere else? And we just kind of pause and we think about that. Like, what are they driving at? Um, And discourse analysis, it may not sound as interesting as a story. Stories build to a climax, right? And I mean, like, guy being lowered through the roof, and he gets up and walks, right? I mean, that's just, whoa, our minds are blown. Paragraphs are also leading to climactic thoughts, but usually they're not as like wow factory. Um, But they are building to this amazing idea um, that's supported in all these ways. Now that leads to some differences, though. When we're looking at a discourse, What we're looking for is what's the central truth of this, not where's that climactic event. So it's a little bit different. It's a central truth. And when we come to a paragraph, we're not tracking events. We're tracking thoughts, the train of thought. Um, And so similar skills, different skills. um, So hopefully that's helpful. All right. I just want to talk about connecting words and then we'll practice looking for Then I'll open it up for questions or comments. Does that sound okay? And then we'll practice on Romans 12, 1 and 2. Um, connecting words. There are tons of them. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of fun. If you uh, zoom way in, you see like there's lots of little ones there and stuff too. Um, teaching ourselves to look First of all, for these connecting words. And if you accidentally pick one that's not a connecting word, like nothing zaps you. Like it's okay. Um, This is a process that's safe. Um, But you can start looking for things like if, so, and, but, um, thus, yet. Like all these kinds of things. We look for those. Then once you're kind of seeing those in a text, oh, here are connections. Then you ask the next thing, what's this connection doing? what is this word, like how is this progressing the thought? And you'll notice just here for the sake of simplicity, here's two key categories. One is adding and subtracting. It's either adding to the idea or it's saying, hey, yes, this, like be holy, but it doesn't look like this. Kind of subtracting is a way you could think of that. Or secondly, cause and effect. Here's something and this flows from it. Or here's something, and this undergirds it. Like, how is that something supported, and what does that something look like? So here are these categories, and if you want to keep adding more acronyms, the guy who wrote the book must love them, um, because here's one, BAT and Price, and uh, I just think it's fun to look at them that way. Um, But You can look, there's but, Uh, but you can look for but, and, and then. These are typically adding and subtracting words. You see them spelled out there. And you can look for cause and effect. So there's like the purpose for something. Um, They explain why a person's doing something. Reasoning statements um, help us understand the person's drawing a conclusion from something. If then statements express possibility. And there can be all types of possibility statements. It could be a real possibility, a theoretical possibility, um, a conditional possibility. So yeah, you can geek out on this forever or fall asleep. Uh, Concessions say one thing is true even if another thing isn't. So like this, this idea. We had a wonderful picnic even though it rained. We had a wonderful picnic, but I'm conceding the rain wasn't the coolest part of that. That's a concession. And then effects... Um, since it rained hard for hours, we had to postpone the picnic. Something happened, something followed. Okay. There you go. That, that is um, some instruction on that. Any um, questions or comments? You want to do the mic? Thanks. That would be great. Questions or comments about this? Yeah, Kevin has something in the back there. And then, yeah, I'll I'll get to that in just a second. The handheld mic is that up? Great. Now we are. We got it. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I've noticed in Romans eight in particular, Paul uses the word for at the beginning of a sentence again and again. It feels to me almost like what we would use, a bullet um, mark yeah. in, in listing ideas, mm-hmm. and so in that case, it didn't feel so much like he's connecting one thought and saying this results results in this and that results in this, but he's kind of listing um, ideas mm-hmm. and then connecting them all at the end. Yeah, is that work? Is that yeah. how it works in Greek? Yes, yes. Um, sorry, just thinking about something. Um, yeah, so, so a few things from that. One, when we hear connecting words, they can be things like and or commas, where you're just adding to ideas, kind of like you're saying. And you can use the word for to do that. I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that and said, is that what it's like in Greek? Because I had this in my notes and I skipped it. Let's think about the word for. The word for in English can be used in at least 10 different ways. That's wild, isn't it? Um, I could list them out, but some of you would like it and others of you would just start thinking about other things. But for can be used um, 10 different ways. And what's, what's interesting is um, when we think of Greek and what is said in Greek, this is what I think is helpful to know. Um, learning Greek is super helpful and important, especially if, um, if you're called upon to teach and understand God's word and, and bind others to that. I think that's super important. Um, if you don't have opportunity to do that, one of the things that's so encouraging is people will say to me, well, what does it say in Greek? If only I knew what this said in Greek. And like when we come to four in our Bible, what it says is four in Greek. It just says gar. And it's there, and then we have to ask the exact same question. Which of the ten ways that we use four is being used here? So that's one of the things that I think is so encouraging, is um, Greek studies, for the most part, if we just slow down and look at our English translations and just think about those and the connections there, because they're good, faithful translations, um, we'll be getting most of what we need to understand. And then, as we'll see in our practice, when we come to some unique terms and stuff where people are translating those differently, that can be a good indicator, okay, there might be something going on here with that actual word itself, and that might be a good one to dive into to better understand like what's going on in the Greek use of that word. But as far as how the structure works out, our translations have, have done a really good job that if we pause and just ask the questions, you know, it's, what, what's there? It, it says and, it says but, and we're just trying to say, how's Paul connecting these ideas? So hopefully you find that encouraging as well. But yeah, that's how four can work. It can be like it's bullet points, and we're just going to keep using that to keep unpacking an idea. Um, that's good. Bruce mentioned, um, how do you remember all of these and acronyms? Uh, you don't. <laughs> and so uh, a lot of times you just have like um, helpful references that if you're really diving into a passage, you can pull those out and look at these things and just be like, okay, that one has furthermore in it. What's furthermore typically doing? Oh, that could be an adding, like an and thing. Okay, and, um, and then over time... Some of these start to get locked in your memory as shortcut things of how different connecting words tend to work. And so it just speeds up the process a little bit. Um, but there's no shame in just kind of having a little file somewhere where you have some of these tools you can refer back to. Anyone else before we move on to practicing? Yeah, Hank. Um, Pipester to Hankster. Yeah, um... I have another acronym that um, I use and remember yes. ever since uh, English finally sunk in. Fanboys. Fanboys? Fanboys. Wow. And it's an uh, acronym for all the conjunctions, the main conjunctions in English. Uh, for, and, nor, but, yet, or so. Okay. Fanboys. Those are the main ones. And all the other ones kind of... Uh, uh, are under under each of those, like therefore, furthermore, those kind of things. Yeah, and um, those help. That helps me. It's helped me for a long time. Nice, syntax fanboys. That's kind of fun. <laughs> uh, so hopefully you find fanboys helpful. There there are all kinds of tools that you might find helpful, and uh, just grab onto one. If you really like price or something, that's cool. The price is right when it comes to syntax. I don't know. Um, all right, we should move on, right? <laughs> uh, Darcy's not here to kind of give me that look that's like, hey, uh, just next slide, please, next slide. Uh, let's practice this, okay? And some of this is just showing um, this isn't my strong suit, um, but I do it a lot and can do it. So, yeah, don't. I don't think you need to fire me because it's not, so hopefully not that, but... Um, I, hopefully it's encouraging to you. This is something I have to personally work hard at when it comes to breaking down the syntax of passages. And there are some people who just can do this like that and just... Um, I rely on other tools. I have to spend more time doing it, um, but I find it, it really helpful and worth it. So um, inside your sheet, this is where... So you have a blank canvas to just go nuts, right? As fanboys. Um, and so what i the reason I put three English translations there is that can be a great place to start, right? If, if you don't know the original languages and things, um, looking around at a few versions can help you see what's going on um, because not everything's going to come out in the same one. And so as we look at these and see some of the differences, that will highlight a few things too. So let me read our passage. Um, I'm going to read it in the ESV, so that's all the way to the left there. And as I do, feel free to take out a pen, pencil, giant marker, um, can of spray paint, and mark like connecting words that you're seeing or things that you're just like, hmm, noticeable. And again, it's not going to zap you if it's like, ah, that was actually a main verb and you shouldn't have circled it. Um, it's fine. No grades. Um, so I will read Romans 12, 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers And then as you look at the three translations laid out across there, um, does anything stick out to you that's, like, different in any of them, just as you look? Therefore, yeah. So therefore, you're finding in the CSB and the, the new NASB, um, as the, it's fronted there. It's in the ESV, but it's further along, the word placement there. So, yeah, that's interesting. Anything else? Yeah. Uh, The ESV makes this interesting choice all throughout. And if you had, like, your ESV Bible open, you'd notice a little number one um, by brothers, and it would have a footnote that says, or brothers and sisters, whereas the CSB and the NASB put that right in there explicitly. Um, when the Bible is using this term "brothers," it's it's referring to brothers and sisters. Hey, whole group of people, um, which I think can be really helpful to explicitly spell out, let alone lest we think it's kind of mainly for the men, but women get to listen in or something like that. No, this is brothers and sisters, um, and that's spelled out in those. Yeah, pipester. Right, right. Yeah, so you've got some different things there. I'm appealing to you. I'm urging you. Acceptable, pleasing. Like just different wording that's going on there. Capturing similar ideas, but makes us just kind of pause and think about it, right? All this is helpful, like observation stuff. Yeah, Kevin? Yeah. Okay, yeah. So you've got by and in view of as a connecting word that's being translated there. Okay, that's that's good to notice as well. Um, we could go on and on, but let me just point out one other one too. As we come to verse two, I, I busted it out there, whereas it may be helpful to keep it all together, but notice the NASB has and, and the others leave that out and just go straight into do not be conformed. So we can talk about where that comes from. But when you see that there, as you look at different translations, then it's probably possible and is is there, and some translations are leaving it out saying it doesn't need to be explicitly there, um, but there's a connection that's taking place, and so uh, it's just kind of interesting there all right, so let's think about um how to do this I think if, if we're um, applying the principles we talked about, we're coming to a paragraph, and what's the first thing that we should do when we come to a paragraph? Other than we kind of step back and just did some observation. But do you remember um, at the top of page four? Look for main ideas. Yes, thank you. As you look at that, now, and then what are some clues for main ideas? Some are the location... Some is restatement, and some is direct address. I see kind of two of those things, one and three, really happening here. Where do you think the main idea is hanging out? Any thoughts? Yeah, it's starting with a direct address, isn't it? So let me just do this. Um, let's, Let's note the direct address here which is just kind of fun. And it's a multifaceted direct address, right? And so we've got this this brothers and sisters that's happening, brothers and sisters. Um, there's this direct I appeal to you that's happening there. And then another clue is this whole therefore that's happening that's saying, hey, I'm about to describe something major, <laughs> right? And then if we look at what's going on main idea-wise, that's usually... We're looking for what's happening with a verb and stuff. And we have present your bodies, right? That's a main thing. Um, As a sacrifice to God. And there are all kinds of other things connected to that, right? Um, You see how that's there? And, you know, It could be, you know, you could do this in different ways. Like, we may look at it and we say, the main idea is present your bodies to God as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Um, You kind of break it out and see those other things are adding to the idea of sacrifice. You know, you could even leave to God out of it as it's a descriptor of where's the sacrifice happening. But we see this kind of main idea, present your bodies as a sacrifice. Therefore... Then is telling us that's based on everything Paul's been saying before. Like, Paul's leading here to a conclusion. And so, what are some of the things that Paul has been saying before that are coming, like, that we've been studying as we've been preaching through Romans 1 through 8 um, that come to Romans 12? Anyone remember anything that's happening in Romans 1 through 8? It's not a trick question in that it's probably easier than you think. But what's the grand thing that Paul's been unpacking um, in Romans 1-8? through 8? Yeah, amen? Can just... Yeah, this good news of the gospel, that our sin has been forgiven, that we have been justified by the work of Christ, and that we've been set free from sin. I mean, that's really summarizing a lot of what's going on in there. And then there's all these sub-things like everything Adam messed up, Jesus has fixed, like all that. But it's really unpacking that good news of God's grace, right, that theme. So in light of the good news of God's grace, therefore, Paul's saying there's a response that happens, present your bodies as a sacrifice to God. Now he also goes on and he he grounds that a little bit there right so let's look let's just look for some connecting words what connecting words do you see in the text there and I'll try and make note of them you can just yell them out Yeah there's an and yeah so we've got holy and acceptable um something that's interesting that we do in English is we can leave out an and and just kind of have a comma going on too, and there's a connection that's taking place there. So it's just interesting to see this um comma connection here. We have earlier on we have by, right? He's appealing, and then there's this by this, and so we could talk about what that's doing. Anything else that's interesting? Maybe Two? Yeah, where, do, where are you seeing that? Just two present? Okay, two God, yep. So it's two God that's telling us where that's going. Yeah, Piper? Hmm. Okay, yeah, good. Yeah, the whole thing. There's a but in verse two. Yeah, good. Yeah, that. Um, I I accidentally grabbed the by, but I think that's okay. That by testing. Um, and then if we go back up into verse one, there's this witch. It's talking about something probably. That you may be stern, what is the will of God? And then we've got this interesting comma, like what's that doing there? Is it further explaining it or what's going on? What is good and acceptable and perfect? So that's a good start, right? Yeah, Amen? Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's good. Yeah Right. And, and that's good. Verse two, how, basically, like, how does verse two connect to verse one is a question we'd ask. And when you see like the NASB in the third column there, it has the "and," and Amon's letting us know, too, that the King James has the "and" there. so we can just kind of circle that, like, what's the connection, right? What's that? And the Greek does. Yeah, hmm It does. Does. Um, okay, so let's just look at a few things with this. Um, so that's some of the like grammar stuff that what you could do is you could make a list of those things and you could systematically like walk through that. And for some of you, that would be super exciting. Um, for others, that would be daunting and overwhelming. But um, let's just kind of walk through it a little bit of what's going on. There's this appeal that's happening The therefore is telling us it's based on this good news of God's salvation that's come. The audience there is brothers and sisters, like just as we walk through those words. And then it has by the mercies of God. And so part of that is thinking what by as a connecting word is doing there. And really what it's saying is it's on the basis of... um, or it's even the source of this exhortation. So everything he's going to say about this command to present your bodies as a living sacrifice is grounded in this idea, comes from this idea of the mercies of God. The mercies of God are the source of this command. The mercies of God are the reason we would have this command, um, the, the grounding of all of it. What do you notice about mercies of God, just out of curiosity? Is it singular or plural? It's plural, right? Mercies of God. Pen, work when I tell you to. Thank you. Um, That's interesting just to pause and note right there, too. It's not just conceived of as one merciful thing God has done, but it's this multifaceted mercy of God. That then leads to um, presenting our bodies as a sacrifice when and then, when we come to this word um, bodies here when you hear bodies, what do you think of probably just your yeah Michael yeah, that's great, yeah, when we hear bodies here we tend to think of our physical body which is true but then what Michael's bringing into it is remembering just a bit of the context of what Paul's been talking about with our bodies especially as viewing them as members of like our body parts as they interact in the world when we come to bodies here offering our bodies is our whole selves but in in saying bodies he's highlighting in particular this way that we as a whole person interact tangibly with this world that we live in. It's a very embodied existence, and it's also all of us, um, our, our whole selves, that is then offered as a uh, living sacrifice. So we have, it's grounded in the mercies of God. The, the call is to be presenting um, our bodies as a living sacrifice. Now, sacrifice there has a lot of connotations from the rest of the Bible, right? When we think of this, we we think of it in dialogue with all that Scripture has been doing. And what word builds out sacrifice? What words actually are building out this idea of sacrifice? Do you notice any? Trying to pick what color. Let's do sacrifice words in red, I guess. So, what words are describing the sacrifice? Living, holy, and acceptable, right? Whoops. Good. Those are all describing this sacrifice that we are presenting our entire selves as to God. Um, so then we can stop and say, okay. What do these words—living, holy, acceptable—what do they tell us about the the nature of this sacrifice that we are offering ourselves to as God, um, or to not as God to God? First is living, right? Living implies ongoing, and it's not a once and for all thing. And when you tie living with this concept of your offering your whole self as a sacrifice you realize it's this ongoing, um, kind of never-ceasing, not-one-time-and-you're-done thing. It's this ongoing sacrifice. Um, and we think immediately of a contrast, right, of Old Testament sacrificial system. By, the, by their very nature, an Old Testament sacrifice was one and done. The animal was dead. The ritual was complete. Um, but a living sacrifice is ongoing and really encompasses all of life, right? Holy, again, is connected to sacrifice. So when we think of a sacrifice as being holy, that's referring to it being set aside for God's use and in service to God in contrast to being profane or just not in service to God. And so we are able to offer ourselves in a living, ongoing way is a sacrifice that is set aside to God for his service. And then the other word is acceptable, right? Third word being acceptable. How else is it translated in other other translations? Well-pleasing, right? So we have acceptable, well-pleasing. Some of us, when we hear, offer your body to God in a way that's pleasing to him, immediately we think of questions of like, well, wait a minute, what is displeasing? Or have I pleased God enough? Or um, is he just there waiting to be displeased by what I do? When we see that this is connected to a sacrifice that is well-pleasing or is acceptable, we, we realize the imagery that's tied to it from the Old Testament, don't we? What was a pleasing sacrifice to God? What was an acceptable sacrifice to God? Yeah, it, so there was without blemish, which then sends us back to, by the grace of God, through the work of Christ, this can be somehow acceptable without without blemish. So it was without blemish. It was done in accord with what God had said. And what was the result? Like when when God was saying, this is a sacrifice that's well-pleasing to me or acceptable to me, he's saying that the aroma of it itself brought pleasure to him, right? Um it's pretty amazing that Paul is saying here, because of God's mercy, we are able to present our entire selves as a ongoing sacrifice to God and one that he finds as a sweet aroma to him, one that he finds as as pleasing to him. Um, not in a way necessarily of, um, oh, that wasn't quite right, so I'm displeased. But the idea that it's really conveying is, the pleasure of God saying, like, that's my kid. That's my child who's doing that. And you know what? I made them to do that. And through the work of Christ, I'm and by the Spirit, I'm now enabling them to do that. Like, the living sacrifice that they are is a sweet-smelling aroma to me, and I delight in what I'm seeing and hearing and knowing that they're doing. Um, that's a really beautiful thing that there's a way we can live our lives that's this sweet aroma to God uh, that Paul's exhorting us to. And that's, that's really beautiful, isn't it? Um, okay, so that, I think, covers a lot of the, the grammar of kind of leading up to maybe God there. You see how we've just kind of broken some of that down? Um, there's this command, it's rooted in this mercy. And then he goes on and he says, which is your spiritual worship? So, Which there is adding to the idea, right, of what this living sacrifice presenting to God is. He's further explaining when you do this, it is your spiritual worship. Um, Now, one thing that you may have noticed, again, as you um, compare translations, is that word spiritual maybe translated different ways in different translations. And part of the reason for that is just it's it's notoriously hard to translate. It's not used very much, especially in um in the Bible like this. And so what's good when you notice a, a word that's being you know um translated in different ways is maybe just step back a little bit and see if you understand kind of the big picture of what it's saying though. Offering yourselves to God in this way is your worship. So that's fascinating. There's this ongoing living. so it's not just when I go to the temple or this once and done thing. It's this ongoing worship um, that we're able to do as believers. And then there's this word that describes that worship, spiritual, um, which, you know, it you find it saying true worship in the CSB. That probably captures it pretty well. Um, it's referring, let me just find my notes real quickly on this. Spiritual. It says the phrase spiritual worship is hard to translate. Ah. Um, spiritual and reasonable, which are words that are often used for it, they miss an important part of the meaning. Um, Doug Moo says it would be best to follow the NIV and translate it true and proper worship. Um, and so it's saying that this is worship that God approves of. This is a thoughtful, intentional, um, conviction-driven worship. Um, so we could spend a lot of time diving into spiritual and all the implications of that. But do you see how even if you don't totally grasp all the weight of how that one word is being used, you're getting this full-orbed picture of a life of worshipful offering to God um, that's totally driven by his mercy and that's well-pleasing to him that he delights in. And that we see this contrast that's developing is instead of thinking, like we could see spiritual there and we could think, oh, what Paul's doing is he's just spiritualizing the Old Testament practice and just saying, oh, now you do this in a spiritual way. Paul's doing something much bigger than that. He's saying that Old Testament practice was really limited, and what you get to do now is so much bigger. That was a one-and-done thing that was done by the body of an animal that was kind of done on your behalf. Now something has happened where Christ has acted on your behalf, the true Lamb of God has come, and now your body itself, in all the ways that you interact in this world with a fallen body, is able to be this ongoing worshipful expression to God as it's oriented toward now living a life that is how we were designed to live it. That's a pretty amazing thing. Um, and so that describes it. And then Paul goes on, verse 2. And so some of you have pointed this out already, right? There's a connection there in verse 2. And in Greek, we have and there, right? and um, and can function like a comma, and can function in so many different ways. And so that's why some translations just leave it out, because it's just a connection that's happening there. And they're saying, in English, we could just say it this way, and you see the connection. Some put it in, just so you pause and you say, connection word, what's going on? But what Paul does is then he goes on to explain how we do this offering ourselves as a living sacrifice. And it happens, he, he says, negatively, right? Do not do something. Do not be. And then but here is showing us this contrast. And so what's being contrasted is being conformed to this world, which if we're looking in the context of Romans, what is that? It's, this whole, it's the whole fallen existence of life in Adam, this whole way of having feudal minds and having bodies that are then offered as weapons of unrighteousness. Don't continue to be conformed that way as you were in Adam, but instead there's this transformation that can happen by the renewal of your mind. Um, And what's so cool about that is he's telling us negatively, you will be tempted to just conform to this in-Adam way of existence. But God is at work doing something, and he wants you to recognize that so you can lean into it. He's at work transforming you by renewing your mind. And if we're looking in Romans 1, what's so amazing about that is, is, do you remember what Romans 1 was talking about? Because of sin, part of the condemnation that came as a result of that is we've been given over to depraved minds. The core operating system of our entire existence was hijacked by sin so that we saw and understood everything in a twisted way. And that's part of what Adam's sin brought upon us. But then what Paul is saying here is in light of all that God has done by both forgiving us, justification, and then um, delivering us from the power of sin, now being indwelt by the Spirit, which Romans 8 is talking about, right? What is God doing? He's renewing our minds. He's reprogramming, according to the Spirit, that central operating processing system so that we can come to see the world and God and ourselves as we were made to see it and as they truly are. That's an amazing corrective to the situation that Adam brought about that we've existed in for so long. And so Paul's saying our pursuit then in in this life of worship is saying, is looking to God to transform. Notice that it's passive, right? Um, Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Um, There's a sense in which we can't fully do this, and God has to do the transforming. But there's also a sense in which we are coming to him, asking him to help transform us and renew our minds by the Spirit. That's uh, what he's doing. And then... I'm saying a lot of words, so, sorry, I hope this is helpful. Um, Here's the result. That, right? So that, that. um, That's showing us that a result is going on. As we're having our minds transformed, he says, the result is that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, Now again, there's theological questions when we come to that, but what Paul is talking about here as he's moving into a a statement on exhortation is not that we could somehow know crystal ball thoughts about God's will, but it's what's the will of God? What is his will of desire? How does he want things to be? How does God want the world to be? How does God want you to be? How did he create these things to be? Um, As our minds are renewed, we're able to more and more discern, which means we can understand what it is and say, yep, I see it that way, and I agree that this is how it should be. Um, and then the will of God is spelled out, right? So will of God, we know it's his, his moral will, but then look how that's talked about. You've got a comma, and then you've got the and, and you've got the and. And so God's will is always good it's always acceptable. We could dive into that word and it's always perfect. Another good way of thinking about perfect is it's there's a wholeness to it. It's it's Shalomish. It's how things were made to be. I'm making that word up, but um a lot of times we hear perfect and we might think, "Oh, cool. So the will of God is just that that I don't do anything wrong." <laughs> and it's like, "Well, it's not so much saying that. There's an understanding of the fallenness and weakness of our condition. It's more saying what's in accord with the goodness of God's creation, what's acceptable of how things are supposed to work, and what's perfect in the sense of its whole and how things are supposed to be. So Paul is saying this. The main idea, first of all, we have to start where it's grounded. God is so merciful. He has provided forgiveness for your sins. He set you free from the power of sin. You are now indwelt by the Spirit, and nothing can shake that. Therefore, there's a response to that mercy. You get to be a living sacrifice. Every moment of every day can be a sweet aroma to God in a way that was just foreshadowed and tasted in the Old Testament. Israelites once in a while got to go to the tabernacle and experience the intimacy of that fellowship and the wonder of that smell of knowing God is smiling upon us. You, believer, can be constantly living as that aroma with the smile of God upon you. Um, this is how thorough the work of Christ is. It's a worshipful existence in the most mundane. Your very body, all that it interacts with, all the limitations of it, it's sleeping for a bunch of hours. And what is it? It can be worship to God in its orientation of being offered to him. How do we do that? How in the world could this start to be how I live? And then he says, well, it's one thing is this. You, you have been shaped by this way of being in Adam, and everything around you operates according to that. But what, so don't continue to be shaped by that. Be aware of what that shaping is. And instead, be transformed, come to God, and ask that his spirit would change you, and that that change would begin first and foremost by renewing your mind, And the renewal of your mind would help you to more and more see things as God sees them. How does he want you to be interacting with your neighbor? How does he view you this morning as his beloved child who now has this life of worship laid out in front of you in the most smallest things of entering something into a spreadsheet or driving to work or wiping a runny nose or trying to go to bed at a reasonable time because as a creature you need sleep. Worship to God, sweet aroma to him. and But come to him saying, make me more this way by your spirit. Um, man. I really tried to fit it. That's what the passage teaches. I think it's worth praising God for, right? All those mercies that are plural, we go there. What do we confess? I tend to be conformed to the world and don't even see it. I don't realize all these worshipful opportunities and the living sacrifice that I am able to be. Forgive me. What do you ask Renew my mind. Forgive me for the ways I don't see this. Give me the ability to see it. Give me the will and heart to offer my body this way over and over again and to know the the joy and the sweetness of God's celebratory exclamation. That's my kid. And I, as a triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, just enabled that sweet-smelling thing, that sweet-smelling thought, to happen. Um, And we get to share in the delight of that. Let me pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. And um, thank you for the benefit of being able to just stop and look at it. We all come to it with different skills of these things. And thank you that um, you're not coming, you're not testing us on it. But you're saying, will you come and will you look at the riches of what I have laid out for you? And will you know the wonder of all that I'm seeking to do um, through the work of Christ and now by the Spirit? So we thank you for this and we pray that you just help us to humbly grow in our love for your word, in our dependence upon your word, and most of all, just our love for you as you've revealed yourself in Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Thanks, everyone. Ryan will be solving all the problems in the Bible next week because that's what the P in captor says. So. So bring your problem texts.